Pastor Danny, I'm glad that we sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's one of my favorite songs of all time, um, definitely of the last 500 years or so, and because uh, it's about that old. A Mighty Fortress uh, was written in German by the reformer Martin Luther. Many of you know that. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, a man of uh, uh, of his own time of sorts, was a, a monk for a period of time uh, uh, in the Catholic Church and uh, came to a point in his life where studying the scriptures and looking at the practices of the Catholic Church around him about 500 years ago, came to see a, a great discrepancy between what scripture said about how he, uh, uh, men and women are placed in a right relationship with God and how the Roman Catholic Church at the time was was uh, understanding and, and uh uh, and uh, teaching how God works out his grace in, in the lives of other people. Um, in much of his study, Martin Luther uh, in the New Testament came to uh, find his home in Galatians of all places. Uh, he at one place has said that Galatians is my letter. Now, not meaning that he wrote it, but that it is a letter that that speaks to his soul and 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 if it's at all possible, would be the the outpouring of his own soul uh, to God. The key theme of Galatians being that we are justified to God by faith alone and not by our works, not by other people, uh, not by the things that we do or money that we pay or boxes that we check. But we are made right with God only through faith. Galatians is an awesome letter uh, in which we we get some of uh, again, we see some of Paul's deep love for the church in Galatia, but also some of Paul's white hot fury against those who would try to disturb those who are uh, trusting in Christ, trying to walk faithfully with him. Uh, the the anger that um, uh, uh, that that a loving father has for his children when they do things that are disobedient and ridiculous. Uh, uh, we see that in, in Paul in Galatians. And so there are some really interesting points that I hope to, uh, of that anyway, to, to pull out and to, and to show us tonight, because it just reminds us that, that God uses uh, human beings with all of their passions and, and all of their um, uh, uh, emotion and everything else to speak to and to lead his church uh, in all sorts of different ways. And so uh, Galatians is a great letter, and I look forward to walking through it with you all together tonight. So let's just dive right in. You have, hopefully, uh, your, uh, your worship guide, your note sheet there in front of you, and you can follow along with me as we go. Before we uh, jump in, let me just pray and ask for uh, God's blessing on our time together. Father, as we open your word together as your church tonight, we recognize that we uh, we are weak and feeble and uh, and on our own, incapable of really, truly understanding all that is in it. But you, in your grace to us, as we have placed faith in your son, Jesus, have given us your own Holy Spirit to teach us all things. And so, Holy Spirit, to you, we ask that you would open our eyes tonight, open our hearts, uh, that we might understand the word that you have inspired through the Apostle Paul. Words that you've used to uh, correct, to chasten, and to encourage the church throughout the last 2,000 years. May we be encouraged. May we be corrected where we need to in our own lives tonight. May we find ourselves more in love with Christ our Savior as a result of having spent time in his word together. These things we pray in his name. Amen. All right. 
Well, the author of Galatians is, as we already said, Paul the Apostle. You remember Paul was uh, uh, previously went by the name Saul. He probably went by two names all of his life, Saul and Paul. Saul would be sort of the Hebrew variant of his name. Paul would have been kind of his, the Greek equivalent of his name. Uh, but uh, Paul, who previously was Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, persecutor of the Christian church, had that dramatic Damascus Road conversion experience where Jesus appeared to him, blinded him for three days until he went on to Damascus and met with the brother there named uh, Ananias who helped to disciple Paul and grow him in his newfound faith. Paul, on his very first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, went through a number of cities in in what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, at the time the region called Galatia. The cities of Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, uh, Antioch, and Pisidia. Some of those may be um, uh, familiar to you, Having uh, looking back on our, our series in Acts that we looked at last year. Galatians is a letter to the churches in those cities in the region of Galatia. A letter probably intended to be read at one church, uh, passed on to the next, read aloud there, passed on to the next, read aloud there. And each church, as they received this letter from Paul and read it out loud in the gathering, probably also made a copy of it for themselves and then passed it along to the next church. The writing of this letter is probably the earliest of all other New Testament writings. Most scholars think that Paul wrote this letter probably uh, between the years 47 and 48 A.D. So that's only, uh, you know, about 15 to 17 or so years after Christ's death and resurrection. So very, very soon after. Most scholars will date this letter uh, in 47, 48 um, precisely because of what is not appearing in the letter. Now, Galatians is a letter all about justification by faith alone and not through circumcision. If we go and we read through the the book of Acts again, uh, we would find in Acts chapter 15 uh, this council of all church leaders that comes together in Jerusalem to determine uh, what do we do, what does the church do about Gentiles who are coming to faith that are not circumcised the way that Jews are? Do we bring them in? Do we require them to be circumcised? What shall we do? And the end result of that meeting is that uh, the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem impose no greater burden upon the Gentiles as they come to uh, faith in Jesus Christ other than not, uh, not eating meat that's been sacrificed uh, to idols, avoiding meat with blood in it, and abstaining from all forms of sexual immorality. Well, the fact that Paul in Galatians, just knowing the content of what he's talking about here, the fact that he doesn't reference the, uh, the council that took place in Jerusalem in A.D. 50 leads us to believe that he wrote this letter prior to that council happening because it was such a momentous event in the life of the church. <clears throat> the general context of the letter, we've gotten kind of to this a little bit uh, already, but uh, we see in Acts 13 and 14, Paul on his very first missionary journey with Barnabas traveling through Galatia in modern-day southern Turkey on that first missionary journey where he was in Lystra, stoned nearly to death, uh, and, at the, uh, and that at the encouragement of some Jews who were hostile to Paul, who were following him around from city to city and rousing rabble everywhere that Paul went. The letter of Galatians, whose main theme is justification by faith alone, seems to be written to those churches in Galatia that, uh, that Paul had traveled uh, through to correct what Paul has come to understand uh, they have adopted, to, to correct a, a grave misunderstanding about the gospel that they have adopted. And this grave misunderstanding about the gospel that Paul is addressing and correcting is namely that circumcision was necessary for salvation along with faith in the Messiah. 
So as you read through Galatians, knowing that, knowing what Paul is trying to correct, will help you to understand the flow of the letter and, and uh, some of the pointed critiques and corrections that Paul brings. As we've said, uh, uh, Galatians is likely the earliest of all the New Testament books and appears to have been written prior to that Jerusalem council in AD 50. Uh, Galatians is itself a circular letter intended to be read among the churches of various cities in that region of Galatia. If I were to summarize the book of Galatians, I would do it here in just a couple of sentences to say that Paul writes to the Galatians to warn them not to trust any gospel other than the one he preached. That Christ, the offspring of Abraham, was crucified for sins and raised for justification. Salvation comes not through following the law, but through faith in Christ alone. Key verse of Galatians is Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. You may want to underline it. You may want to highlight it. Uh, somehow uh, draw your attention to Galatians 2, <clears throat> verse 16, so that when you read through the letter on your own, you, you see where the center of this book is. Galatians 2.16 says, Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified, that means made right with God, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There are two major themes in the course of Galatians that we find. The first is that we are justified to God by faith alone. Is that a surprise to you? We are justified to God by faith alone. The second theme is this, that we are justified to live as those who are sanctified. We are made right with God to live, with, to, to live as those who have been made holy, to live as those who are pursuing holiness as a new kind of life, having been made right with God. Now, considering redemption history, the scope of redemption history uh, all throughout the Bible, from creation to the fall to the redemption that we see in Christ uh, and a consummation where God makes all things right, uh, institutes new heavens and the new earth. We live uh, for eternity there with him. The book of Galatians sits squarely on that theme or, or circles, um, um, I almost said circles squarely. That, that uh, is a contradiction in terms circles right around that theme of redemption. This is how we are saved. This is how we are rescued from our sin. This is how we are made right with God, how we are justified by faith alone. Galatians, like uh, Romans and first and second Corinthians that we've already looked at in the New Testament is an epistle. It's a letter. Epistles are often written to specific churches with a specific occasion or specific conflict to address. We've already talked about what the conflict is in Galatia. Most of the New Testament epistles begin with a theological foundation and then move to practical application. And we'll see that here in Galatians. So when reading Galatians or any of the other of the epistles uh, in the New Testament, I suggest using these questions to help guide your reading, uh, uh, your reading and your study of the book, as well as applying the principles that you find there to your own life. First of all, what is the occasion or issue that the author is addressing? Here in Galatians, we know that Paul is addressing the problem that the churches in Galatia have come to trust a gospel that says salvation comes by faith in the Messiah, but also, and most especially, through circumcision and following the law. Ask yourself and try to answer also, what theological principle or principles are guiding the letter? And we'll look at some of those tonight. Thirdly, you can ask and try to answer in what ways is the occasion of the letter, the problem that Paul is addressing, similar to the present day. In what ways do we try to add things to the gospel as necessary marks of salvation, right? Or, or necessary works for salvation. 
Galatians follows a pretty simple outline in about three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 give us history. The history of Paul, his calling as an apostle, his early ministry. history, The history of one true gospel faithfully delivered. Section 2, which is chapters 3 and 4, uh, <clears throat> are what I would just call theology. It's the, it's the theology section of Galatians. And the theological principle uh, at play here is what we've already said, it seems like 450 times, but we should never get tired of it. That justification comes by faith alone and not the law. And then the third portion of the letter is ethics. So there's theology, which is uh, the, the doctrinal principles we need to understand, and then ethicals or ethics or practical application of those theological principles. And the ethics of Galatians is, are this, that those who are, are justified are to live as those sanctified. And we'll see that in chapters 5 and 6. And so uh, that is the outline that we'll kind of uh, follow on our tour through Galatians tonight. Now, often we've heard the idiom, as we now get into the book itself, we've heard the idiom that some wonderful message may be too good to be true. The promise of a detergent that will get out every trace of grass, mud, and blood stain is too good to be true. A financial planner who swears that he has a plan to turn your $500 into $150,000 in two weeks is too good to be true. Having all of our sins forgiven and being made right in the sight of God merely by entrusting our lives to Christ who died for sins and rose again sounds too good to be true. Where's the catch? What's the gimmick? Surely salvation can't be that simple. We're often tempted to believe. And so we often add to that simple gospel truth necessary works or particular deeds of obedience to supplement our faith and to secure our salvation. There is in our hearts, friends, a disposition to add certain aspects of religiosity to faith in our own minds to, in our own minds, merit the salvation that we long to receive. There's, we, we, we want to do something to feel like we've earned what God has given to us. In a similar way, the churches of Galatia had been convinced of a gospel of faith plus keeping the law of God, and in so doing had abandoned the one true gospel of redemption from sin by faith in Christ alone. It is to this controversy in Galatia that Paul is writing, and out of love for the truth and out of love for the lives of those to whom he preached, that he pleads with them in this letter to return to the truth. And so we look at history, one true gospel faithfully delivered. Chapters 1 and 2. Paul opens his letter by verifying his identity and authority as an apostle. Not by men or not for men, but through Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead. We read there in verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle, not from men, through, uh, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, we say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's no doubt who has called and who is equipping Paul for this gospel ministry. With the Galatians, though, as we've seen in other letters, Paul will uh, address the church and he'll often give a prayer of thanksgiving or some sort of personal greeting. He does briefly in verses 3 and 4. But with the Galatians, Paul has no time for general remarks and prayers of thanksgiving for them like he does so many other churches. Rather, Paul uh, begins with a stern rebuke. Are you ready for this? Verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's important that we see the, 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 the passion with which Paul is writing to the church, the, the, the vehemency with which he is defending the true gospel. These are harsh words for a people that Paul loves so deeply. But consider that love is often sharp with its words when people are in danger. The danger here, Paul says, is that in believing in a false gospel, the Galatians risk eternal separation from God. Get out of the street, Paul says. There's a bus barreling toward you. Step away from the cliff, he cries, lest you fall and die. And by the way, cursed be the one who told you that playing in the street and dancing at the cliff's edge was ever good for you. Notice in chapter 1, verse 10, that Paul could not care less about how they or anyone responds to his urgency. Paul could not care less about what anyone else thinks of him but God. He says, For am I now, try, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why do I say such harsh things to you, church of Galatia, Paul says? Because I love you and because I'm serving the Lord. Do I care if you're angry with me about this letter? No. Because I'd rather you be angry with me and, and right in your understanding of who God is than happy with me and, and happily marching on your way to hell. So then that is what the, that, 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 so then what is, we, we are led to ask, what is the gospel that Paul is protecting with such insistence here? He tells us in chapter 2, verse 16, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This gospel that Paul is so intent to defend in this letter, as we've said before, often sounds too good to be true. That salvation comes only by faith in Jesus. It certainly seemed too good to be true for those Jews who followed Paul through Galatia causing trouble and who later came uh, to, to the cities of Galatia saying that if anyone wanted to be right with God, he needed to not only believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but most especially to follow the law of Moses with perfect precision. A concept closely associated with the regulation of male circumcision. That is, to be circumcised was to follow the law of the Old Testament. You follow? Judaizers, as they have come to be called, were those who required and convinced Gentile believers in Jesus that faith was not enough to justify, but that they needed to tick a few other boxes as well. This history of the gospel faithfully delivered warns us that even the best of us has a propensity to add things to the gospel. Even the most faithful of Christians has a propensity to add things to the gospel. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul recounts a time when Peter, who had received a vision from God in Acts chapter 10 to take the gospel to the Gentiles, where Peter was found after that encounter with the Gentile man Cornelius to be secluding himself from Gentile believers as the whole church gathered together to share a meal. Look at Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14 with me. Paul writes, But when Cephas, that is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically right along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Even the best of us have a propensity to add things to the gospel. Peter, beloved Peter, who finally seems to get it all straight in Acts chapter 10, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, had to be rebuked publicly by Paul because Peter cared more about appearing religious to the religious crowd than acting with consistency about the gospel that he preached. We may not often be tempted to say that we need to add works to our faith to be saved, but sometimes we can imply that only certain people can really be saved. The gospel of justification by faith is not a gospel of separate but equal. When anyone, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or social status, places saving faith in Christ, he or she has done all that is necessary for salvation. And all that is required for adoption into the family of God and the body of Christ, the church. So then, dear friends, let us avoid the sin of hypocrisy about the gospel by shaping our lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised for the salvation of all who believe. Doing this, then we delight in eating with the poor and the shabbily dressed. We are pleased to put our arm around the single mother who is struggling week to week with her her children and getting them to, to church on time. We take joy in singing next to those whose first language is not English and praising the Lord in their native tongue with them. Because by faith in Christ, we have been made right with God and united to one another. So let us avoid the temptation to ever add things to the gospel of salvation by faith alone. That's history. What about the theology? Chapters 3 and 4. The theology of this letter is simply this. Justification comes by faith alone and not the law. Not the law. The fact that justification comes by faith alone was for the Jews a difficult thing to accept. We might should go a little easier on those first century Jews who are trying to understand how all of this worked out. Because for centuries they had lived under the law of Moses, faithfully trying to keep it out of hearts that were devoted to God as his people. And we would be wrong to throw all of the Jews into the boat with these Judaizers. A good many were searching for the true gospel as Jews, just as during the Reformation a good number of Roman Catholics were searching the scriptures for the gospel that had been obscured by Roman Catholic tradition. The law delivered by Moses and ratified in the Jew through his circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's Old Testament covenant community since Genesis 17 and Exodus 20. It was tied deeply to their identity. The law and circumcision was was so much of what it, it meant to be Jewish. Paul himself was a Jew and a zealous and advancing one by his own admission in chapter 1 verse 14. Paul loved the law, and Paul followed the law in his previous life prior to his conversion to faith in Christ. But he recognizes that keeping the law was never promised to make someone righteous before God. And so he writes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, and here we have a quotation of Genesis fifteen six. just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All of this justification by faith and not by the law and, and that being a truth that was uh, preached even by God to Abraham in, in Genesis 15 makes us ask with all the emphasis uh, uh, upon the law in the life uh, uh, of the people of Israel makes us ask the question, then what is the law? Why ever the law if it wasn't to bring us righteousness? Why, why did God ever give this? We find in the course of the verses that follow that the law is at least two things, Paul tells us. First of all, the law is a curse to those who live by it. I'll say that a little bit differently. The law is a curse to those who seek to be righteous by it. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It is a curse to those, the law is a curse to those who live by it, because the law itself only serves to reveal the sinfulness of man and the need for constant forgiveness of sin. If one lives his whole life in obedience to the law, all he can confidently say of himself is that he is not righteous. For that is what the law does. It reveals our sin and our need for atonement. The law is a curse to those who try to be righteous by it. Because all the law does is continue to condemn us in our sin. The law is a curse to those who live by it. The law is, though, also a guardian, Paul says. Chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul writes this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. By this, Paul means that from the time of the promise to Abraham until the fulfillment of the promise in Christ, God gave the law as a tutor, as a guardian, as a teacher to remind Israel that the promise that came to Abraham by faith was not yet completed. The law reminded them of their sin and of a gracious God and of the promise that was yet to come. The law was a pair of guardrails on the road to the Messiah that was intended to keep Israel from taking their eyes off of the promise. But the law became to Israel the path to righteousness itself. They mistook the, road, the guardrails for the road. Israel had mistaken uh, the, the guardrails for the highway and the, and the tutor for the truth. What is the law? It's a curse to those who live by it, but it's also a guardian, a tutor, a teacher from God to prepare his people for the age of faith and the coming of the Messiah. That leads us to ask, I think, a second question. Knowing then what the law is and knowing that justification comes by faith alone, we're led to ask, what then is faith? Faith is at least three things in Galatians. First of all, it is the mark of true Israel. Chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. 
How do you become a son of the promise? How do you, how do you become part of the, uh, enter into the, the blessing of, of Abraham to the nations? You have faith, faith in the promise. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You become a son of Abraham. You become a part of God's true people by faith in the promise. Faith is the mark of true Israel. Secondly, faith is how we grasp life in Christ. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we read this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. How do you come to have new life, forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God? How do you come to be made alive in Christ? By trusting in him, by placing faith in him, and by no other means. Faith is the mark of true Israel. Faith is how we grasp life in Christ. Faith is freedom in Christ. In chapter 3, verses 25 through 29, we read these verses. Paul says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under that tutor, under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. In chapter 4, verses 30 and 31, Paul continues. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, at this point, I should uh, help us to understand a little bit of what Paul is talking about here. In chapter 4, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, uh, Paul refers to Hagar and Sarah, who we just looked at this morning in Scripture, as an analogy, as an allegory for two different kinds of living. Let's look at these verses together. In chapter 4, verse 21, Paul says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you who really want to be circumcised, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, according to the, if I can put it this way, the efforts of the flesh. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, Paul says. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, the, the speaking here of the law, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, son of the promise, are children of promise. But just as that time, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul is looking at, uh, and looking at the lives of Hagar and Sarah and the sons that they bear and the means by which those sons were conceived uh, as an analogy, as an allegory for living two different kinds of ways. On the one hand, living according to the law, trying to find righteousness by keeping the law is, is like Abraham trying to bring about the promise of God for offspring through efforts of his own flesh with his wife's handmaid, Hagar, as opposed to trusting God for the promise that would come through his own wife, Sarah. 
Paul says, those of you who are trying to live and be righteous, be justified to God by following the works of the law are doing no more good for yourself. You're bringing about no more of the promise than did Abraham when he slept with his wife's handmaiden and tried to have a son that way. Trust the promise. Have faith. Be credited as righteous before God because of your faith in his promise. Understanding the the theological underpinnings of this letter that being made right with God comes not by works of the flesh, comes not by keeping the law, but by trusting in the promise, by trusting in Jesus Christ. I encourage us or exhort us this way, that if your hope for being made right with God, if your hope for salvation lies in anything other than Christ by faith in him, you are a slave to a religiosity that will not save you. If you're hoping that your church membership keeps you right with God, you are mistaken. If you are clinging to an experience of baptism to be made right with God, you are mistaken. If you are taking the Lord's Supper, hoping that by it God will look on you with favor, you are a slave to religiosity and to a law that cannot make you righteous. So friends, know this, I am deeply troubled on a regular basis, by the thought that in our church on any given Sunday, there may be those who are going through religious motions in the name of Jesus, but who have not in their hearts trusted him first and only for their salvation. It terrifies me to think that there are people who may be members of our church who are trusting their church membership more than they're trusting Christ for salvation. As your pastor, please, I I, I beg of you tonight, Search your heart for where your faith lies. Does your faith lie in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection? Or does your faith lie in what you do in the power of your own efforts? To Pastor Danny and myself, teachers, deacons, other leaders in our church, let us all be warned that there are severe consequences from God for those who would lead others astray from the gospel. Paul, in inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in chapter 1, we read this earlier, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I'm saying again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And again, in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, in chapter 12, Paul says to the Galatians, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul is saying to those Judaizers going uh, going through Galatia, trying to convince these new Gentile believers that they must be circumcised in order to be righteous with God. He's saying to them, if you think taking care of a little bit of skin will help you to be righteous with God, why don't you just go all the way and be as righteous as you can be? Of course, he's being sarcastic. He's being graphic. But to make a point. Brother, pastor, teachers, deacons, leaders in our church, may we never, 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 never give anyone anything to hold on to for hope of salvation. May we never, ever, ever preach any other means of being right with God and forgiven of our sins other than by trusting in the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and submission to him as Lord. 
I pray as strongly as Paul, Lord, strike us dead before we lead anyone to put their confidence in their flesh, to put their confidence in their performance, to put their confidence in their efforts. God, kill me. Kill me dead before I ever do that. Paul gives to us history of a gospel once faithfully delivered. Theology, which is justification by faith alone, not by works of the law. And he closes his letter with ethics, with application of what he's just uh, taught the church about who God is. The the most pressing ethical implications of this book are, are these, that those who are justified are to live as sanctified. Those who have been made right with God are saved to live holy lives. Just in case the Galatians were in danger of using their freedom from the law as a license to do evil, uh, saying, you know, I'm not saved by works of the law, I'm saved by faith, so now I'd say I trust Jesus, so I can just do whatever I want, right? Paul writes to ward them from such conclusions in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, where he writes, "You, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is to say that those who have been justified by faith should live in such a way that shows they are being sanctified, that shows they are being made holy by the Holy Spirit working in them. And so Paul moves to say that a a life of one who is justified, living as those sanctified, is a life that walks by the Spirit. And so Paul writes to them in uh, chapter 5, 16 through 26. He says, I say this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If I could say that differently or put words in Paul's mouth, I would say, if you're following the Holy Spirit, if you're following the influence of the Spirit, you'll not do what what your flesh, what your body, what your sinful heart wants you to do. He continues in verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Verse 18, he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And he's going to give us a laundry list of these. Are you ready? These are what the works of the flesh look like. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul's saying, this isn't even an exhaustive list of sins I could give to you. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the, the, the works of the flesh are these long lists of sins. And then he contrasts that in verses 22 and 23 with some of my favorite verses in scripture. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is different. The works of the flesh are sinful, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's no law saying, don't do these things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, Paul says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Walk by the Spirit, Paul says. If you are saved by faith in Christ, live a life pursuing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says also that those who are justified are to care for one another. To care for one another. He writes in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, these things. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. 
And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. Those who are justified, made right with God, united to Christ by faith in Him, and united to other believers by that same faith in Jesus are to care for one another, to do good for one another, to restore each other, to restore those who have walked away in sinfulness, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. They watch their own lives and the lives of those around them. They bear one another's burdens. This is what it looks like to live in the light of our justification with God. We walk in the Spirit. We care for one another. And finally... Those who have been justified by faith in Christ boast in Christ. They brag on Jesus. Chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, Paul begins to conclude his letter this way. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Those who are trying to impose the law upon Gentile believers want to have another person, the works of another person to boast about. Look what a great Jew I am. I convinced this other person to to be circumcised. But far be it from me to boast, says Paul, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. We do not boast in the number of converts that we have made to Christ, in the number of Christians that we have brought into the church. We don't brag about the works that we have done to bring people into a new life with Christ. We brag on Jesus who brings people to new life. We praise Him for that. And we give all glory to Christ who deserves all praise for working uh, the miracle of salvation. We boast in Jesus and not in what we have done. Here we come to understand by the end of Paul's letter to to the Galatians that having been justified to God by faith in Christ, we ought to live lives filled by the Holy Spirit. Having been declared holy by God as we trust in Jesus, the right response is to live in physical holiness. It's not uncommon for Christians to see the pursuit of holy living as a burden to bear. And it is if we're trusting our holy living to make us right with God. But when we come to grips with the reality that God has declared us holy through our faith in Jesus, then walking in repentance is a joy. We're free from sin through faith in Christ. We are free to enjoy worshiping with other believers each week. Not, not out of obligation, but out of joy for sharing in the, in the new life that, that we all share together. We are free to love one another and God, as God in Christ has loved us. We are free, dear friends, not to sin because Christ became the curse for us and died to pay for our sins. In Christ, we are free to live as God has designed us, in the knowledge, love, and worship of Him, to our joy and to His glory. We come now to, as we close our study of Galatians, to see the significance of Christ in this letter, as though it weren't already obvious. I would point out just a couple of things to us. First of all, 
Christ is the offspring of Abraham and the object of promise. We looked at this several weeks ago, uh, actually in in Genesis chapter 12, as we first began our study in the life of, of Abraham, that the promise to Abraham of land and offspring and blessing of the nations through him and through his uh, through his offspring, all of those answers or all of those promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. The promise of land uh, comes to fulfillment in a heavenly home that Christ prepares for us. The promise of offspring find its, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. The promise of blessing to Abraham... Uh, to all of the nations, comes through Jesus, uh, his death and resurrection, and the gospel that goes out to the world to bring all people uh, uh, to salvation and to a right relationship with God through faith in him. Paul points this out, and it says it better than I ever could in Galatians 3, verses 16 through 18. He writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer becomes a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise, a promise fulfilled perfectly in Christ Jesus. Christ is the offspring of Abraham and the object of promise. And secondly, Christ's death is for our righteousness. That's the significance of Jesus in this passage. Christ dies so that we might be made holy. We might be made right with God. He doesn't die to give us an extra boost so that we can work harder to finish out the rest of our salvation. He dies so that we can be saved, period. Paul says in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But Paul says Christ did die for a purpose, a glorious purpose, the glorious purpose of bringing us to be right with God, our father. Praise the Lord. Christ's death is for our righteousness. We have the awesome privilege tonight of sharing together in one of the very tangible reminders that God gives to his church to remember Christ's death in our place, his body broken, his blood shed to ratify a new covenant of grace so that all who trust in him would be made right with God. Tonight we, get, we take together the Lord's Supper.